We are <clears throat> starting a new series today on the book of Titus, and uh, it's going to be a six-week series. And um, if you have your bulletin, what I'd love for you to do is flip to the back. I put a couple, just a few notes on the back of the bulletin that highlight a little bit of the background of the book. It gives you a quick overview and um, helps you to understand maybe themes a little bit better. I just want to stroll through that really quick. Titus is a pastoral epistle uh, written by Paul, an apostle in the church uh, who was commissioned to declare the gospel, to train up other leaders. And he writes this, uh, this book to Titus. And uh, Titus was a leader within the church. And if you look all throughout uh, Corinthians, you look in Acts, you'll see Titus's name continue to pop up. Because he was active, he was moving around, he was involved in a lot of things, and uh, was a strong leader in the community. The book was written somewhere between 63 and 67 AD is what they assume, but it was written most likely right after 1 Timothy. So Paul is in the midst of writing several letters to several individuals, men that he um, kind of trained up or followed him, and uh, that he has sent out, or in this case, he left Titus on the island of Crete. Uh, so Titus's kind of pastoral assignment was an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Not too shabby, you know, like to think about setting up camp there. And there's about a hundred or so little towns and um, cities that he was supposed to go in and appoint leaders and begin to see the church, the, the movement of Jesus on that island come alive. And uh, it's a pretty, pretty cool calling. The, the interesting thing also about Titus, while it is a letter, its size is pretty small. So if you compare it to like 1 Timothy is about 100 verses long, 2 Timothy is about 70 verses long, uh, those are what you would kind of consider to be letters. Uh, Titus is probably more of like a postcard. It's 46 you know, verses long. It's a little bit shorter, a little more succinct, direct. It's kind of like get in and get out, get the information out there, don't create a lot of fluff, get to the point pretty quick. I mean, if we're putting it in today's terms, like maybe second and third John are more like status updates or tweets, and this would be more like a Facebook message, just a short little, you're not going to give the full email, but just enough information so that we're all on the same page. And that's what Paul's doing to Titus. He's saying, I want to give you some important information to make sure we're all on the same page as you begin to lead uh, on this island. The other um, main idea behind the book is uh, this understanding of good works. A lot of people could describe it as the gospel of good works or the good news about good works. So all throughout the book, you're going to see this theme of being zealous or passionate for being do-gooders, passionate for good works. But it's not just good works for good works' sake. I think there's a couple things to, um, to make note of really quick. The first one being that, that good works is essential for authentic faith. That what Titus is hearing from Paul is that good works show or reveal that our faith is grounded. That it's being lived out. That there's action that comes with our belief. But also, that good works are evangelistic in their nature or their thrust. So it's not just good works for good works' sake, or good works so that you know, Matt is built up and encouraged, but rather it's good works so that when those outside of the community of faith look at the relationship, look at 
what it is we're doing for the community, what we're doing for each other, that they can't help but marvel at it. So he keeps saying over and over that you're doing these things toward one another for the outsider. So it's really this idea of um, you're doing it for the kingdom, that it's for the spread of the gospel, it's for the glory of God. It's, there's this motivation behind the good works that's outward focused. I mean, you'll hear that a lot here, that it's, it's got to be for the nations, not just for us. So that is kind of the backdrop to the book. And we're going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look at the greeting in verses 1 through 4 of uh, Paul's statement initially to Titus. And then we're going to look at his first kind of imperative command, verses 5 through 9, where he talks about leadership. All right? So let's uh, look at Titus. If you haven't turned there already, uh, turn to the book of Titus, and we're just going to go through verses 1 through 4 to start. It says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior." Paul loves run-on sentences. I mean, this thing is huge. Okay, that's his greeting, and then he says right away, this is to Titus. To Titus, my true child, or son in the faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Right at the very beginning, this greeting, what Paul does, very simply, is he states to Titus and to those as a church community that would be reading it, he states his name, his position, and his mission. Right from the beginning, he starts off and he says, my name is Paul. Those of you, you know me, you know who I am. But then he begins to describe his position. And he states it in two particular ways. The first thing he says is that he's a servant of God. That he's a slave for God. And he doesn't, he doesn't start talking about his status or his role or, or what he's done for the church, but he begins with saying, I am a I'm, I'm humble servant of the king. That it's my job to, to serve for his sake. Then he, he brings up a second idea, which is that he's an apostle, a sent one. One that has been commissioned to spread the gospel, to build up the church. And so... Right at the beginning, as he is communicating this to Titus, but also to the whole church at Crete, he's saying, I come to you as a a humble servant of God for the sake of having the gospel declared as a sent one. What's unique about his kind of position or the thing that he communicates right at the beginning is that that's the exact same thing we're called. Right? I mean, if you think about it, New Testament talks about this idea that that you've been bought with a price. That you're no longer your own. That you are a servant of the king. That you're a son or daughter of the Almighty. And that that you get to serve in that capacity. And then, obviously, we're all called to make disciples. We've all been sent. We've all been commissioned. We've been told to go. And in our going, make disciples of all nations. So in much the same way that Paul is communicating his position, it's the same kind of position for us. He then shifts to this idea of mission. Why is he writing it? 
and why is he really why is he living what is the um the just the driving force behind who Paul is. And he states this right from the beginning, that I am these things for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So he really points out two things. The first one he says, um, I am these things, a servant and a sent one, for the sake of the church. For the sake of the church in the area of growing in the knowledge of truth. So he's saying, Titus, I want you and I want the church to grow in the knowledge of the truth. And then the second thing that he mentions is this idea of that truth, that knowledge, then working itself out in godliness. So he's saying, for the sake of the church, I do what I do so that the church grows and lives out what it's called to live out. So... With that as kind of the greeting or the backdrop to his statement, he then moves into this teaching to Titus, this kind of calling to say, this is what you need to do in light of, of that greeting. And you'll find it here in verse 5, the first part of it. It says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's charged with the task of putting the church in order by appointing leaders, appointing elders. So right from the beginning, as, as he steps into this island where there's a hundred little villages, towns, cities, he's to go from town to town, village to village, beginning to spread the gospel and appointing leadership so that the church could have order. Now, I want to pause for just a moment because I think a lot of times um, it's important for us to get some background on why, why would he even ask Titus to appoint elders in the first place? What is the role of an elder? Why do we have them? What do they do? And then maybe even specifically, how does that look at new communities? So let me give you just two quick thoughts. First, elders are really stewards of the church. They're supposed to be Servants who walk with the church, the community, the body of people, and build up, encourage, support, lead, pray for, care, minister to. I mean, that's, that's the goal of what an elder is supposed to be, what he's been called to be a part of. And so, basically, Paul commissions Titus and says, Appoint these servants. Appoint these leaders to care for the people. The second thing that I wanted to point out really quick is that elders is plural. I know it's a pretty simple point, and, um, but I think it's a pretty profound point. That elders is plural. And at New Community, one of the things that um, is so important to us and so important to this community is the idea that we are a community, that we do things together, that there's a unity about it, that it's not just um, leadership making a decision, but that it's us as leadership working together and us as a community working together. And because of that, there's a couple ways that we try to flesh that out as it relates to eldership. The first one is this, that we believe that there's multiple giftings within the church that all need to find their expression. So in Ephesians 4, it talks about this idea that God has called or gifted people 
to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or shepherds, and teachers. And that all of those giftings need to find themselves uh, displayed, uh, showcased, used um, within the community. Where that's significant is, on our leadership community or on our elder board, what we seek to do is not to create an imbalance in the church by just appointing certain individuals with one particular gifting, but that we look to see that all of those gifts find themselves expressed as a leadership community. And the reason that's important is because there are a lot of churches that will kind of begin to look odd-shaped simply because they're very, they lean one particular way too heavily. Whereas if you can create a group of people who work together for the common good of the church, then hopefully what you will have is a, a balance in gifts that it finds itself expressed among all of us equally so that we become a balanced community living its life out in our city. So that's kind of the idea behind it. The second important thing is that there are certain things as an elder community or a group of leaders that we value or believe in. I'm going to list them up here on the screen. We believe in shared leadership and shared decision making. What I mean by that is this. That there's no one within the elder community that holds a trump card. That nobody can walk into a meeting and go, listen, this is what we're going to do. But that what we do is we pray together as a group of leaders and seek the Lord and say, Lord, you are the head of the church. We are your servants who are designed to follow. So lead us in this. And so all of our decision making happens as a group. That we don't move forward until we all together collectively go, we're sharing the leadership in this. We're sharing the decision-making in this, and we move forward. Another um, big value of ours is kind of the principle of flat leadership. That there is not a hierarchy that is created within the church, but rather that there is a oneness. That there is not, um, these are the appointed leaders who then determine what happens for everyone, and that's just the way it is, but that we keep it flat, that we keep it relational, that we keep it a community. And then another thing we value is the idea of shared teaching. If you've been around a new community uh, for long enough, you understand that. Uh, there's not going to be the same person up front every week. Now, some of you might have been going, well, why, why do we do that? What is the point behind that? Here's one of the main reasons that we do it. God has gifted numerous people to teach. And in his giftings, there are certain things that if you were to uh, take the bulk of my teaching over a period of time, you would recognize there are certain topics or certain slants that I just love to talk about because I'm passionate about them and because that is how God has gifted me. And then there are other individuals who are speaking the exact same message but coming at it from a different perspective that gives a more well-rounded growth to us all in a community setting. And so we believe that instead of having the celebrity speaker who is always the talker, that we believe that it's best to create a well-rounded community by having multiple voices say the same message. So again, these are just... I just wanted to pause for a moment to tell you that that's the way we have been and will continue to operate as a community because 
These things aren't just decisions that we made haphazardly. We believe they're born out of our theology. That we understand certain things to be true of a way a family should operate. Or what community looks like. Or what it means to steward the church or serve the church. So all of these, it's just a quick little pause button, all of these things help you hopefully to understand a little bit more of what God's intention, Paul's intention is in relation to Titus to appoint, appoint leaders. So with that said... He, de- he declares to him, appoint these leaders, and then in verse 6, he begins to describe what that looks like. So if you look down at verse 6, he says this, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, there's a lot of moving parts in this passage, a lot of pieces, and uh, we're going to try to walk through it quickly, but there's one overarching big idea to the leadership and that is they're supposed to be above reproach. The idea of being blameless or well thought of. It doesn't mean perfect, even though the list makes it kind of feel that way. It it means that they're to be well thought of, that nobody can point a finger and say this individual is unqualified, that they're, they're blameless or above reproach in that regard. And so... What, what Paul is doing is, is saying to Titus, this overarching theme, whoever you appoint in leadership has to be above reproach. Now, above reproach, in my opinion, looks different in Ephesus than it does in Crete. That's why Paul writes a different list to Timothy than he writes to Titus. Which means if we're applying it in our context, essentially what Paul is saying is when you appoint a leader when you appoint elders, that you need to consider these types of qualities that reveal what it means to be above reproach. So above reproach in Spokane looks different than above reproach in San Francisco, than above reproach in New York City, than above reproach in Paris or Africa. You get the idea, right? That there are expectations of what it means to be above reproach in each of those contexts, and so we have to tease it out a little bit. And so for this... Paul is saying, here's what it should look like. Here's a for instance for what it looks like for you, Titus, and for the people that you're appointing. And then he begins to list this set of characteristics or qualities that all of us are to aspire to. I mean, this is not just if you're like going, hey, someday I'd love to be an elder. And maybe, like, if I just start checking this list off, like, I'll get there some point. No, it's it's a follower of Christ, is to begin to look like and reflect this. And that there are many, we believe, within our midst that have these qualities. They might not necessarily be called into an elder role, but the goal is for all of us to aspire to live out and look like this particular list. So we're going to go through the list. We'll go through it um, as quick as we can. First one. He says in verse 6 that 
above reproach means to be the husband of one wife. The main idea behind this, you've probably heard this teaching before, you've probably um, understood that it means a one-woman man, and you can get into all the specifics or details behind that, but I really, the main gist of it is that he is devoted in word, thought, and deed to his wife. That there's a devotion. That the things that he thinks about are all committed to the one woman. That the things that he does are all committed to the one woman. That the things that he says are all about the one woman. Anytime I read this passage, one of the individuals that pops into my mind is a a basketball coach by the name of John Wooden. I don't know how many of you are really familiar with him, but he's probably one of the greatest basketball coaches um, that has ever lived. And uh, he is an incredible man of character. Um, There are many things that are said of him, uh, not just about his coaching and his ability to teach people, but who he was as an individual. And one of the things that uh, I found so profound about his life is his relationship with his wife. I mean, John Wooden met his wife, whose name is Nellie. He met her when they were 14. So at 14, they fell in like with each other, and eventually it became love, and then eventually they got married. They got married right after college. And... uh, They spent about 53 years together. And um, many people speak to just the the fact that they were kind of inseparable. They had this deep, passionate love for one another. Well, he just recently died this last year at the age of 99. And when he was, I believe, 98, they were interviewing him and asked him about his wife. And he made this statement. He said, another old school quality that I have chosen to maintain is the fact that I am a one-woman man. Nellie and I were married for 53 years. I've never been with another woman. When she died two decades ago, I decided to remain loyal. To honor her on the 21st day of each month, I write her a letter. I still write on special occasions. I put the letter on her pillow for a night and then put it away with the other letters I've written. I was loyal to her in life, and I will remain loyal to her memory until we are forever together again. What a stud. <laughs> I mean, that, that is just a beautiful picture of what it means to be a one-woman man, to be devoted to his wife. I mean, I, I've heard stories of him taking her bathrobe every night and laying it on her side of the bed before he gets in because he's committed. That's his wife for life. And it's just a beautiful picture. And it's what we're called to. We're all to aspire to to be a one-woman man. But what I have noticed in the church, and I see it continuing to grow over and over, is... More and more people who dabble with multiple women and then assume that they can, when they get married, make a decision to be a one-woman man from then on. What I mean by that is there are a lot of individuals that, through the area of pornography, are beginning to objectify women 
take an image for a period of time, commit to that image, toss it, dispose it, gain a new image, purchase another one. You get the idea. I don't think we're really setting ourselves up for the ultimate goal if what we're doing is dabbling all along the way with quick relationships that are all about self and not about the other, and then expect at some point to just be able to flip a switch and go, I'm committed to one, and that will last forever. See, I'm afraid that as the church at large, and even some within here, what we're doing is we're training ourselves to be unsuccessful at that which we say we want to be. I mean, and we wonder then why our success rate in marriage or our divorce statistics or the broken relationships in marriage exist when what we've been doing is training ourselves to be unsuccessful. So I know for some of you, because I've had numerous conversations, you're, you've brought that reality into the light. You're discussing it. You're talking about it. You're wrestling through it. Others of you, perhaps, are just allowing it to eat away at your soul right now. And I suggest bring it into the light. Practice what you ultimately desire to become. And it can be true of, of relationships too, not just an image on a screen or in a magazine or on your phone, but but in your dating relationships, the, the standard is purity. The standard is to care for your sister in Christ or for your brother in Christ and to love them, not with a selfish love, but a love that waits and anticipates this commitment that you're making. So train to be this one-woman man because that's what he's talking about, that leaders within the church need to be Devoted. The second idea that he highlights in this passage is <clears throat> that there needs to be a, a family life with the children that looks like this. Verse 6, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Really, it means that he's supposed to have believing children that behave. Now, that doesn't mean they have to be perfect. What it means is that they are being raised in the teachings of Jesus, that they are eager to follow, follow God and begin to understand what it means to love Him and live for Him. And that, that's the way they're being raised and that's what they're being called to. Because it, it says in Timothy that if a man cannot govern his house or care for his family well, how is it possible then that he can care for the family of God? So God is saying, be faithful in the little, and then you will be faithful to care for the family at a larger context. So that's what the second one is about. And then if you look at verse 7, he begins to break this down into two big sections. And so we're not going to like uh, necessarily go through each one very long, but verse 7 says, so as an overseer, God's steward, there are five vices and seven virtues that need to kind of be a part of what it looks like to be this kind of individual. Five vices and seven virtues. The five vices are this, not arrogant. It's really the idea of not self-pleasing, not proud, but a humble individual. Not someone who's always putting himself first, but rather putting others first. It's a picture of what Jesus has done for us 
that he comes, that he gives his life for others. And that's, that's the picture. Second one is not quick-tempered, patient. And James talks about the idea of being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And that's the descriptor. Not a drunkard. What that really means is not just about alcohol, but being moderate. Meaning, not to be addicted to something. Not to be uh, controlled by a substance or something outside of self or the Holy Spirit is really the picture there. And then the last two, not violent. It's really the idea of not just uh, when someone angers you, like holding back and not beating them up or anything, but it's really the idea of being peaceable, being a peacemaker, going out of your way to bring about reconciliation rather than division, uh, to, to make peace. It's an active thing. And then the last one of the vices is not greedy. It means really pursuing the kingdom first and the bank account second. It means not being consumed with a love for money, but, but rather, I mean, God, Jesus speaks that idea, right? The whole idea of you can't love God and love money, that you can't serve both, that it's, it's really, are you most passionate about this, is the point. And then the seven virtues. Here they are, hospitable. Someone that loves strangers, is welcoming. I had a good friend that anytime he walked into any room, within like 10 minutes, it seemed like he knew everybody. You'd meet someone on the street and, you know, within five minutes they're having lunch together. He just loves strangers. It's the idea of hospitable. A lover of good, it's pretty obvious. Someone that is passionate about good things, wants to see the best in something. Self-controlled, controlling our emotions, controlling our desires. Upright means fair or equitable, treating people equally, stand-up individual. Holy. It's really that idea of being set apart, devout, someone who's following and, and, and trying to live a life that reflects obedience. Disciplined is this idea of our conduct, being right and self-controlled in it. And then the last one he describes a little bit in more detail. If you look at verse 9, he says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So he must be passionate about the word and hold on to the truth and for two reasons. The first one is to give instruction. So he must be able to teach, and he must be able to uh, encourage others with the Scriptures. So as he works through the Scriptures himself, that he begins to teach it and communicate it, let other people know, and encourage them with the truth. And then the last part is that he needs to be able to silence or rebuke false teaching. So he has to have the ability to go, this is what truth is, Therefore, I understand this to be false, to deal with that which is false so that the truth might shine brightest. So he lists this pretty extensive picture of what it means to be a leader or an elder within a community. And it's something that all of us are called to aspire to. And as we were praying as a group of elders, we've been praying for quite a while about... um, adding someone to the elder board. And uh, we just felt like, if we're going through this section and teaching on what it truly means, that we, we want to then invite someone into this. And so as we've been praying, we um, 
we felt like the Holy Spirit was leading us to invite Wade Pinnell uh, to join uh, a group of elders. And so I'm going to invite Wade up here. But uh, Wade and uh, Julie are both coming up. Uh, they've been a part of our community for um, a little over a year and a half. And uh, they're highly involved in the community. They're um, involved in small group leadership. Um, Julie is one of the main teachers and toddlers and active in children's ministry. Um, they're working with married couples. They're doing counseling and mentoring. They're active in the community, Moms in Touch, all kinds of other ways in which they're seeing their gifts lived out within our community. But we really, the more we've been praying about it, the more we've been thinking about it, we have sensed that God is asking us to invite them into to that leadership, into that service role, really. And uh, while it's intimidating to say this, we believe that Wade fits the characteristics that, that God, through Paul, has described here for Titus. We believe he is above reproach and is living in that um, with excellence. And so we are in the process and have been in the process for a while of, of asking him to be a part. And so just to give you a quick picture of what that looks like, uh, it's been a journey. It's not a, a real quick process, but one in which um, they kind of explore what does it really mean to serve in this capacity, and we begin to get to know them and explore more uh, who they are and, and how they live out, uh, not only these qualifications, but the values that we have here in the community. And so uh, we have invited them to take part in this process, and the process isn't completed yet, so this isn't the time where we lay on hands and say, yep, they are a part of the leadership, because again, we believe this is a community, a community thing. That is not just as leaders appointing someone, but rather us all speaking into the process. So let me give you a quick picture of what that looks like. Um, as they've been praying about it, and as we've been praying about it, we've all continued to sense that, yes, God is leading us in this direction. And so now we open it up to the community at large, and and here's what we're asking you to do. We're asking for you over the next couple of weeks to pray with us in this. To pray that, that we are sensing correctly what God has asked. And we want you to be a part of the process in a couple ways. We firmly believe that the scriptures teach that he has to be above reproach. And so if there is some area that as you look at this qualifications that you know Wade or Julie more than you know than we know them even, that you can be able to come to one of us as elders, and I'll have them stand up here in a moment, um, and, t and speak with us and say, there, there might be an issue here. Or let me give you a more specific example. I'll just keep picking on Matt. Um, so the Bible makes it very clear that if Matt and I have an issue with one another, that I can't even begin to take communion or begin to act as if everything's fine until this relationship horizontally is dealt with. See, too often in life we go, oh, my vertical relationship with God, everything's great, while our horizontal is messed up. And the Bible says if this isn't good, then this isn't good. So needing to be able to deal with that. And so what we're also saying is come to the elders if there is something that needs to be dealt with or go directly to Wade about that. And we want to lean into that. We want to, to deal with an issue if there is one. And so over the next couple of weeks, we want to give permission to say, hey, join into this conversation. But not just in the area of, 
hey, we don't know if he quite meets the bar. But, but also, we believe that he does, and we want to hear echoes of that. So if you know Wade and Julie at all, and you can echo that, yes, we, we sense that in them too. We sense that they are living out these very things that Christ has called us to live out. Then let us know that too. Let us know the ways in which uh, you see that being lived out. Um, they're going to be staying up here a little bit after service for you. Uh, those of you to get to know them a little bit more, uh, interact with them um, if you don't know them yet. But let me really quick have uh, each of the elders that are in this service stand up. Patrick Lorden was in the first service, and so he's not here right now. But if you're an elder with us, stand up. Uh, over in this corner is John Jansen and then uh, Pat Argonshona. And then Rob Fairbanks over there. Come to any of these men. Come to myself. Uh, if there's some input you want to give into this decision, we are all ears. We believe it's a community decision together. All right? So um, let me pray with us, and, um, and then we'll move into one last song and just uh, ask God to continue to bless our time.